0: Like how you decide which sperm to use, the cold, hard truth of fertility, your reality of dating as a single mother who doesn't have a co-parent to rely on for occasional childcare,
1: and what it's actually like to parent as an SMC. This is
0: the Mocha Single Mothers by Choice podcast.
1: So hi, Pod. A few weeks ago, we did the twins episode when we were talking about SMCs having twins. When I listened to the twin episode, my mind was just, blown anew because there were so many things that there were so many big topics that were hit on in that episode. Para and I both felt that we needed to take a step back and go back and debrief that episode thoroughly. And so for me is I, as it was happening,
0: and it's funny because, you know, you all hear the audio and you don't always see the video behind it, but Aisha and I, our faces were just like in shock. And it's interesting because there were definitely parts of the episode that I connected with, or parts of our discussion that I connected with, just as a mom who has been pregnant and given birth. But there were other parts that frankly I was shocked Mm -hmm. at just some of the the images, you know, as Toja was talking about some of the medical complications that come with it. I was, I was, I was shocked because I just didn't realize. I mean, I remember carrying one, I was like, you know, I feel like this is terrible. I feel miserable all the time, but I just can't even imagine what it would be like to carry two at once.
1: Yeah. And, you know, pregnancy is a blur and these are, these are people in our community. These are our friends. So we, we, we talk to them through their pregnancy, but when you actually get an opportunity to hone in on the finer details, it's just like, wow. Cause pregnancy is such a blur, but it is just, wow. So Why don't we go through and and break down some of the medical aspects of a twin pregnancy that Toja and Carla brought up last week that kind of overlap with our experiences?
0: Yeah. So I think one of the things that we were trying to cover with the episode, and I, I think both of us thought about, you know, we don't want to be overly negative, right? But I think the reason we took the lens of kind of a cautionary tale in some sense was because we so often hear moms be, oh, I want twins. I want to be one and done, right? So we were like, okay, let's make sure that people are going into this eyes wide open, understanding the realities of what that means. And I think that what we should talk about with that is having twins, just having twins, if that's the only thing that is already a high-risk pregnancy. And so Aisha and I have both had the experience of having one pregnancy that was fairly basic and fine and one pregnancy that wasn't. And I will say in my experience, my oldest was, I mean, I was miserable. I was a miserable pregnant woman, both times, all times. (laughs) But uh, looking back on the two, I thought that my oldest, I was like, oh, this this is so hard until I had a high risk pregnancy with my youngest. right, And I had cholestasis, which Carla alluded to in the episode, but we didn't get into depth about it. And essentially what it is, is it's a liver enzyme issue. And really the only way to solve it is to deliver the baby. But right. for me at 20 weeks, when I was diagnosed, that was not an option. And what it manifests as you get really itchy all over, like your palms and your feet, and, and sometimes just everywhere, you feel like you have an entire body rash. They can give you medication to try and manage the symptoms. But the reality at the end of the day is that the risk to it is that you have a higher chance of stillborn. So every single week, twice a week, I'm going in and doing testing. And I also remember seeing the bill, $15,000 a week was what it was if I had not had insurance. And so that alone, I am so lucky and thankful that my job at the time covered it, but also just the, the anxiety, it's hard being pregnant anyway, because you're like, oh, am I feeling the baby today? Is everything okay? And then Mm -hmm. to know that there is a very real possibility that something could, something worse could go wrong is just a, is a hard way to go through nine months.
1: Right. So similar to to you, I had my first pregnancy with my oldest was bliss. I mean, no complications. It was just bliss. My second pregnancy, I I think I've mentioned before, was a shit show in that everything, things just kind of went wrong in terms of medical complications. And so One of the things I think Carla and Toja hit on was gestational diabetes. And I was being monitored throughout my entire pregnancy for gestational diabetes for if I tip into it. So I was um, at risk for being having gestational diabetes. And so I did not go into gestational diabetes until the 34th week of my pregnancy, but I was monitoring myself the entire pregnancy. I had to, the needle pricks, I was on medication. I had to really whittle down and watch what I ate throughout my pregnancy.
0: Which I cannot even imagine because like when you're pregnant, you have these cravings and all I wanted was chocolate cake, literally I could have eaten chocolate cake for breakfast, lunch and dinner, which is probably why I gained so much weight, but I cannot imagine having to be like, okay, I guess I'm eating green beans and drinking.
1: It was a mess because I also had with this pregnancy, I also had morning sickness, which I did not have with my first pregnancy. And when you have an empty stomach, you have to eat a lot. I had to eat a lot in order to overcome morning sickness. And normally what I would want to eat are carbs. I could not eat carbs. So it was, how do you fill Uh, up your belly on vegetables and rabbit food and eggs? Right. And that's interesting because I mean, I'm
0: thinking back to what I would eat when I was feeling sick and it was like crackers Mm -hmm. or bread or bagels. That's that's the thing. I mean, yeah, I did. I, like I said, pregnancy is stressful, even if things go well, Mm -hmm. because, all of us really want these babies, you know? And I think also many of us come at this older. I mean, I wasn't older with my first, but I certainly was with my second. And so society will have you believe that, oh my gosh, you are a geriatric pregnant woman if you're over 35. Uh And so you're just already, most of us are already anxious. So then if you add in all these extra things, like you know, oh well, that ice cream craving. You know you can't give in to that
1: <laughs> ice <laughs> cream. I was, look, and the so that was just gestational diabetes. That was in and of itself a lot to deal with during pregnancy. Now, toward the end of my pregnancy, around it gets good mm-hmm. around thirty-six weeks, around thirty-four weeks, they noticed that the baby was not growing as as big as they they expected at that gestational age. And so my OB was like, let's wait and see what the next appointment brings, which was my 36 week appointment. Mm-hmm. And my 36 week appointment, they diagnosed me with IUGR, which is interuterine growth restriction of my um, Ooh, cool my back. fetus.
0: So you had a week where you were basically like I don't know what this means. They've just told me to wait. Like I hate when they do that. They're like, "Oh, there might be something. Just mm-hmm. wait." Like how is that for you? Just waiting that
1: week to be like, "What is this? I mean, are you a, are you taking to Google MD at this point?" Like No, I wasn't. I had had enough It was a three-year journey to even get to that far. I was mentally done. My medical team knew that I was mentally done, and they were just doing whatever they needed to do to keep me sane throughout this last stretch of pregnancy. So I thoroughly appreciated them. They knew where I was. I was like, I can't handle something going wrong. And they told me, let us worry about that. When there's something to worry about, we'll let you know. So, for the two weeks, I didn't really think about it. I trusted my medical team because I just wanted my take home baby. I didn't care about the details in between. I just wanted my baby. And I let them know I said, at the end of this, I have a five year old who I need to go home to, and we need a baby to take home with us. So, Mm -hmm. we can't have this, we can't have a situation where I don't take home a baby.
0: Well, that's another interesting layer to this, too. And I think that most of the time when we're dealing with things in our pregnancy, we don't have a partner to have to manage their, you know, we don't have to manage another adult's emotions. But I do think for moms out there who are going from one to two, it is important to think about how, you know, this other family member is going to be invested in the pregnancy and their kids. So, I mean, just this morning we were in the car, and I was asking my oldest if she remembered remembered something about when I was pregnant, and she said, "No, I don't remember that." And she was like, "But I do remember the time that you passed out and hit your head." And I remember, I so I had I fainted, I had heat stroke, and I was six months pregnant with with her sister, and she she remembers hardly anything about the pregnancy, but she was like, "I remember being really scared, and I was worried something was wrong with Isa." yep. And it's like, you know, they, they are like these little people that are totally invested. And I remember she kept saying, she'd point to my stomach and be like, that's my baby in there.
1: Mm -hmm. So, so yeah. So uterine growth restriction means that the baby is not growing as well as expected. Mm -hmm. And so what that meant with that diagnosis is a cascade of happenings that, that, that come along with that. I was told I had to, increase my calories, right? Because the baby, so
0: your, your diet, you're having to hold
1: on, hold on. It gets <laughs> yeah. better. I know. Oh my God. So, because with interuterine growth restriction, it's, is the baby getting enough calories? So yeah. I had to increase my calories. And so I'm sitting there like, but I I'm, I'm monitoring my diet for gestational diabetes. How do I increase calories uh. Eating only vegetable oh and God. protein, and so they were like, "You, you have to start drinking protein shakes." What I had to drink Glucerner, three Glucerners a day because I think that they were something like five hundred calories each oh, wow. on top of my regular diet, and so this was a low sugar protein shake, which was joy. So I had to really manage that at while still going to work, while still mm-hmm. caring for my four and a half year old and preparing her foods. And then part of managing the state gestational diabetes is making sure that you exercise, Mm -hmm. right? Because that helps to manage your insulin levels. Mm -hmm. Having to conserve calories meant I could not exercise. Oh gosh. And I guess that's the thing. I think people
0: don't realize about high risk pregnancies. It's just Being pregnant, you're just an emotional mess most of the time because your hormones are just messing with you and you're uncomfortable, probably not sleeping as well as you normally are sleeping. And I think as mothers, we often carry a burden of if there's something wrong, even if it has nothing to do with anything we've done, right? We still feel like it does. And I think this also happens when people are going through fertility treatments because society makes us feel like, oh, you know, Being a woman means being fertile. And so we just, it's really hard to not have guilt if anything goes wrong. And I'm wondering how you managed that, like your feelings about
1: what was happening. So before I even got to that, it meant I could not pick up my toddler. Mm. It meant, as an SMC, I could not nest and prepare my home for the baby because all of that required energy. It meant I could not. I could not go and play with my child for like the last four weeks of pregnancy. It also meant that put you on bed rest like, it also meant that I had to go on bed rest oh. and so I had to involve my job and I had to call them and say hey i I need to be put on bed rest because I need to conserve my energy, mm-hmm. you know, and going into the office was an energy expenditure that I could not afford at that time so how did you manage
0: child pickup and stuff for your that,
1: I just had to. You know, that was me balancing the risk. I tried to limit all other energy expenditure, but I I still as an SNC had to go pick up and drop off my child. But also, so during that time period, that meant let's talk a little bit the number of appointments that that added to okay. to my my schedule. But that's where I'm going to leave interuterine growth okay. restriction. So the way to fix that is early term delivery or you're being monitored very, very closely. And one of the the results or one of the the outcomes of any growth restriction is hypoxia, um, mm-hmm. not getting enough oxygen, not getting enough blood. So when they're doing the Doppler and they're doing the ultrasounds, they're looking for organ-saving patterns. Like mm-hmm. the fetus is struggling enough that they're trying to save the heart and the brain. And so mm-hmm. then that causes a real... Mm-hmm shrinking of the rest of the the body of the baby in utero, and Mm -hmm. to save the head and the heart. And so that's what they're kind of looking for. But they typically will deliver early so that nothing happens to the baby. And so what my OB was telling me was when this is happening, you want to do kick counts, you want to make sure that you feel the baby move. Mm -hmm. And I had an anterior placenta. So I was not feeling a whole lot of movement period throughout the entire pregnancy. So it was a lot of anxiety. And the way that I managed it was I just tried to keep my support team looped in and I tried to stay optimistic and I was just open with everybody that I spoke to and just tried to to focus on getting to the last weeks of pregnancy. So those were impact.
0: Like, I know that when you go on bed rest, you got to talk to work, right? Right. And I think that we should acknowledge that there is a certain amount of privilege working in tech. Right. And working in some jobs that are more flexible than others, you know, allowing you to work from home or what have you. I will say that when I had my first, my oldest, I was a contractor and I didn't have any long maternity leave. It was six weeks. That was it. I was not making. A lot for DC standards. So I wasn't, I didn't have, you know, 20 to $30,000 savings. Mm-hmm. And so I am thankful that my, my first pregnancy with my oldest was so normal and fine mm-hmm. because I couldn't have afforded to just take off. And the job that I had at the time required me to be on site. Right. And if I wasn't on site, I was taking leave. And I could not afford to take leave because all of the leave that I had, I had to save up for maternity leave. I was even working in comp time hours so that I could have more. And I think I probably would have been devastated and not sure what to do financially if I had had to take off time for bed rest.
1: Right. So another impact um, is the impact to your job. So both Toja and Carla had twin pregnancies, and sometimes it requires an extended period of bed rest. Um, And on top of that, you have a lot of doctor's appointments for me and my situation in particular with my second pregnancy, because I was being monitored from the very beginning for gestational diabetes. That meant that I had an appointment with an endocrinologist probably twice a month on top of your regular OB appointments. Mm -hmm. And then when I moved into interuterine growth restriction, I also had to have weekly um, maternal fetal monitoring appointments, MFM appointments. Which meant when you, Hera, did you have MFM appointments, maternal fetal appointments? Well, with with my youngest, we had to do
0: monitoring. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, where where
1: you go went, in? And yeah,
0: it went from like once a week, in addition to all of the you know regular checkups, and mm-hmm. towards the end. I think in the beginning of pregnancy it's like, you know, every other month or something. They're like, "Ah, we'll see you in a month." And then it mm-hmm. just like rapidly increases to once a week, multiple times a week. And so at the end, I was going in for fetal monitoring twice a week, right? Plus I had my OB appointment, which was at least once a week. Right. And that was one of the reasons that I had to sit down with my job and I had to scale back that last month because I was just always in the doctors. <laughs>
1: right, right. And so, okay, so you have the, the the MFM appointment is not just an appointment where you go, they check you out and then you leave. Most of the times it's at a hospital mm-hmm. and you, all right. So for me, I had to wait until the baby flipped over. I had to wait to increase the heart rate. Mm-hmm. And so my little baby wanted to sleep a lot. So these ended up being three hour appointments because I had to get the baby to move. So they would have to give me a snack cookies and juice to get the baby to wake up and move. And then if she didn't, I had to turn to the next side. Then they had to reset all the monitors. It was like a three hour appointment yeah. once or twice long. a week. Yeah. And well, so
0: I think I had to be there for, I, I mean, I still had to be there for a good like 40 minutes because they had to hook it up to the monitor and, you know, I would just be hanging out or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I could, I could read and, you know, do some stuff on my phone or whatever.
1: Yeah. I could but you're read. like laying on a bed hooked up to monitors and eating, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm eating snacks, which uh, spike in blood sugar, right? Juice, Mm -hmm. and all that stuff. So it was just, it was a lot. It it ended up being really intense. And then when you have a second child already at home, you have their appointments, their sick appointments, your health maintenance appointments. So it is a lot to kind of juggle and it becomes really intense at times. So it could impact your job. I can tell you each time I went through an IVF treatment, my, my mood was impacted. So you would be sometimes out of control and, you know, at work. And if you're managing people, you're, you're working double time to manage your moods because you don't want to snap at somebody because you're pregnant or you're on hormones. Right. So, all right, let's talk a little bit about, I think we touched on this, but let's talk about the finances, right? Because with twins and a twin pregnancy, and I love the way Toja framed this in, in that she wasn't looking at it as like paying twice, double for everything. But it kind of from a, a singleton looking in, mm-hmm. for me, that's what freaked me out was that it would be double of everything, you know, at that point.
0: Yeah. So when I, so when I had my first, I was really worried about childcare. Even just for one. Mm-hmm. because, and I know we talked about this in the space just the other day. This woman was like, i'm I, I pulled out my Excel spreadsheet and I was putting down, you know, every single item, which I think is a really good thing to do. Really think about like, okay, what, how much am I spending on my housing? How much am I spending on food? And when you when you have gotten to the point where you're comfortable as a single person, that price tag of daycare, is shocking. And at the time I was researching daycares in Washington, DC, and most infant childcare was more than I was paying for housing, like a lot more than I was paying for housing. And I was like, how am I going to do this? Because if I had this much disposable income, I would own a house and not be living in a small tiny (laughs) condo. Right. Right. Like I was like, I don't know. I honestly don't know how I'm going to do it. And so part of my thought process for just how to afford it Was, okay, I've got to get, maybe I can get to the six month point, leveraging my community, taking as much time in maternity leave as I possibly can before I have to spend that and I can do some savings. But I cannot imagine having to think about that for two, because a lot of these daycare situations, they'll give you this scrap of like, you'll have a 5% discount, but that's nothing if you're going to be paying $2,300 in daycare each month.
1: Right. And I, I like the way Toja again explained this where she was like, it's a strategy because there's, mm-hmm. you know, month to month, it's a strategy. And I'm currently going through because the world, the economy doesn't stand still when you have twins. Right. And mm-hmm. so when you're paying childcare." inflation impacts childcare, you know, everything starts to impact that childcare. And so you kind of have to have a strategy. Now, childcare lasts, but like four and a half, three to five years, if you're a parent, because some some states have mandatory preschool or something like that free preschool. I'm in Virginia, we don't have that. So I am on board for paying until my child enters kindergarten. And so I absolutely have a strategy for paying for childcare. Luckily, I'm at a childcare center that allows me to put um, daycare on a credit card and it's a cash back rewards credit card. So I do get, re- get to reap some benefit of the money that I'm spending um, out. But I go into the red each month because of childcare. And I'm just looking, you know, I don't want to rush my child into growing into five, but I'm also looking for the light at the end of the tunnel when she enters, you know, elementary school.
0: Um, but I think that one of the things that I would encourage moms to do, no matter what child situation you have one, two, what have you I think there's a lot of ways you can really think outside the box to think about and, and leverage your state. You know, In some states, if there are preschool options, in some places like DC, there are options that are lotteried. So you just have to get, you have to make sure you get in early enough because you can't just roll in in August
1: and be like, can I get in? And once you become pregnant and you're confident in that pregnancy, start looking for all Mm -hmm. of the things that require lottery, because oftentimes by the time that baby is here, you would have missed the lottery.
0: Yeah. And that's, yeah, the data, getting the data is really important. And I think that there, people should think about the fact that childcare centers is one option, but it's definitely not the only option. If you don't have a community you can leverage for childcare, you can also look into things like au pairs, nanny shares. Uh, Some home daycares are less expensive. I will only caution people by saying, make sure you get a referral. (laughs) before Mm -hmm. you send your child to a home daycare, because I don't, I, I think they have different accreditation standards and you could end up in a situation that is not safe.
1: So Hera, I did want to take a step back and talk about something that was implied in, in Carla's story when um, she was talking, because we had talked through all the way up until she transferred her embryos about, do you transfer one, do you transfer two? And I really deeply appreciate Carla's thought process and why she made the decision to transfer two as opposed to one. And I think key to that was that she did not want to have remaining embryos. And so she transferred the two, understanding that there was a strong chance of twins. Um, But she, because many who do IVF will have remaining embryos, and then you are trying to figure out what do I do with these embryos. And so she made the decision to transfer to, but having to decide what to do with embryos is a very real thing.
0: Yeah. I also think, I mean, there's a larger conversation here around thinking about the changes in our country with women's health in general and new abortion laws or and that and, and being a state-by-state state thing, I think that in addition to a diversity of feelings women might have around remaining embryos, I think there is a very real concern, at least for me, of what happens if somehow our country decides that it's no longer my decision what I do with them. And yeah, I think many people might think of that and be like, well, maybe the risk of this is, is worth it. And, but I did also very much appreciate her thought process there. And I think because she used a double donor, I appreciate that she thought about not only how she felt about it, but how her child might feel about it. And I think that is the, that for me is often part of my decision-making now with my children all along the way, you know, any, anywhere from like, how am I going to explain this choice to how am I going to interact with donor siblings and all the things, because this isn't just me. This is, this is their story in their life.
1: Right. And so when you use double, double donor, that means you are the parent, but you also have the biological or the other parts of the DNA, right. That contributes to your child. There is the male part. So, someone that you would have to interact with you know ideally in the future your kid too and then there's the the egg donor part the person who donated the egg so not is it not only is it just you not only is it just donor siblings but it is the 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 male who donated the sperm and then it's the female who donated the egg so all of that gets wrapped up into and once you have donated embryos, then it's another set of family members, right? And it's the SMC who used that embryo, or the the parents who ended up adopting that embryo. So it becomes a lot more complex to tell that conception story. And um, as we say, a lot of times, SMCs are thinking people. So we're not just thinking about the, the today. And for us, to carry yeah. this pregnancy, right? We're also thinking about how our decisions will impact our children down the line. All right. So before we wrap, I did want to have a quick chat about objectification.
0: So I know in our biracial episode, we touched on how irksome it is when people try to create a designer babies by using sperm outside of their race, and I think that there is there there are some parallels here, right? between the objectification of race but also the objectification of twins and we see a lot when in in the spaces and this isn't just the mocha space this is like all smc spaces where they're like oh it'd be so cute dressing up two little girls in the same outfit look my kids are five years apart and i still put them in the same outfit yes but I digress, (laughs) but I think that, you know, people are thinking about how cute it is without thinking about the actual impact and child safety element and also their own safety of having to carry a twin pregnancy.
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, I was shocked. Just the, the imagery of Toja telling the story of having open wounds where I have the luxury of stretch marks she yeah. had open slashes gashes that had to themselves mm-hmm. heal from the pregnancy I can't imagine I'm a runner too and so when Toja talked about being a runner I mean I am mentally impacted by not being able to work out as often as I did prior mm-hmm. to becoming a mom but, but ha- have physical limitations right right now I'm like Four years, almost four years in, and I feel almost normal. Like I can go out and Mm -hmm. run if I want to, but I can't imagine not being able, physically Mm -hmm. able to do the things that I would normally do prior to having to carry a pregnancy. And so Mm -hmm. I do appreciate her candor in sharing that part of her story. I mean, for
0: me, I was thinking about the image of her leaning forward. And them doing the epidural because I, I remember that. And I remember feeling like a whale. I mean, I was just huge and I only had one baby in there. And so I, I was really, I really connected with the imagery of that, like her just not being able to do it.
1: And let's talk about that for a hot second, because you're in the middle of contractions when they have to come in and give you an epidural. So remember, you're close to delivery. So your contractions are like one to two minutes apart. And so it doesn't take them one to two minutes to put in a catheter. So mm-hmm. you, I remember mm-hmm. getting that. And I, again, ha- I carried a smaller pregnancy. And so they came in to do the epidural and I'm in the middle of a contraction and they're like, hold still. You hold still. Look, pro tip. And this is something that I learned
0: having spoken to one of my white friends, did not know this was possible because I have never heard this being offered to a black woman. So let me just put that out there. You can get the epidural before you start contractions. So if you go in and you know you you get uh induced, right? I've been induced three times, never actually went into labor on my own. Mm -hmm. And you can get it as soon as you walk into the hospital. So you don't actually have to sit there and struggle through that.
1: That was my experience with my first pregnancy. It was bliss. As soon as I walked in, I had two contractions, Hera, and I was done. I was like, no, they were like, do you want the, I was like, yep, give it to me the second time. Even before the contractions start. Oh yeah. No, no. They had asked me. Experienced the contractions. They had asked me as soon as I got there. And I was like, no, I'm i I'm a ride it out. I had two contractions. I was like, Oh no, give me, give me the drugs. But with, with my second pregnancy, I, I was induced. Um, this is a pro tip that a friend of mine told me is that as soon as you get there and chit-chatting with the nurses, ask how many people are in active labor on your floor. Mm. That gives you an indication of how available the anesthesiologist is going to be when you're ready. So I got there for my second pregnancy, and this one I was intent on doing, you know, full out the, um, labor, no epidural. And so they were. I was like, okay. So by the time I was ready for for meds, I was like, I'm ready for the drugs. And so they were like, the anesthesiologist is doing a C-section. I was like, but I'm ready for the drugs now. It was like I couldn't take it. I had to wait probably an hour. And active labor for the anesthesiologist to get done to come. So.
0: so I was in labor for eight hours with my son before the mm-hmm. anesthesiologist got there. Mm-hmm. And then it didn't work. So like it it numbed half of me. And mm-hmm. I, I mean it was my first baby. So I didn't know. Like I was uh-huh. like, is this what's supposed to feel like? Uh-huh. And it wasn't until my oldest daughter that I had it. And I was like, holy crap, this is like amazing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Because I didn't realize that it didn't work the first time. And it it wasn't actually, yeah, it was, it's terrible. Look, you don't get a gold star for natural labor. I know people think that like they want to, you know, brass it out or whatever, but I'm here to tell you, my kids are fine. I had the epidural with all three of them. Like it just, just, I don't know, take them out.
1: now. I, I will say, you know, your, your, your journey to labor and delivery is yours. We won't yes. judge you. If you decide to go full out natural, we won't it, judge yeah. you. If you decide to get the epidural, like, you know, 34 you weeks want to in the bath because, because-
0: <laughs> I would not do that, but you go ahead with your bad self. I'm but the no, there's no shame
1: in getting the epidural and none of this, <laughs> but, um, Alas, that is our debrief of the twin episode. We just wanted to hit on some of the finer points because I think sometimes when you go through it and and then you're still kind of in the midst of that fourth trimester, it's just, you made it through. So everything is just like, you're just retelling that story. But there are so many nuances to both of their stories that we really thought that it warranted uh, a debrief episode. So thank you for joining us. Aisha and I have been
0: thinking about this a lot and we've been- actually chatting with donor-conceived people. And one thing I really appreciate about them is that they try to advocate when every decision you make, think about how your child's going to feel about it. And so I think that one thing we can stress with with any sort of pre-thoughts about how you will get pregnant and when you will get pregnant and all these things, just make sure that through the whole process, no matter what you decide, you're thinking about how your child will feel about that.
1: Well, Pod, thank you so much for taking the time to listen. If you like what you heard, share us with your girlfriends. We'd love to hear your thoughts. So tell us what you thought of this episode on social media. On Facebook, we are at Mocha SMC podcast. And on Twitter and Instagram, we are at Mocha SMC. You can find additional information on the topics from the podcast at our website at mochasmc.com. Till next time, pod. Bye now.